Hello and a warm welcome to this podcast in which the living in love and faith gaze turns towards the riddles, scope and the revelations found in creation. And as inquiring members of that creation, we will be examining and assessing how the natural and social sciences can lead to a deeper understanding of human identity, sexuality, relationships and marriage. Creation is God's good gift, freely given and lovingly upheld. But from that moment, when we spot a ladybird on a windowsill, we are transfixed. We're acknowledging the insect as a fellow inhabitant of a bespoke, interrelated, ordered structure. We are in this place, the LLF book tells us, to live a life deeply in tune with what is truest about us. And that includes our sexuality and our identity. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster and songwriter. Seeking answers, how do we hear God in creation? The Reverend Dr. Andrew Davison has undergraduate degrees and doctorates in both natural sciences from Oxford and theology from Cambridge. He's the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences in the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge, a former junior chaplain at Merton College, Oxford, and in 2015 he became a canon at St Albans Cathedral. In fact, he's the first canon philosopher in the Church of England. His most recent book is Participation in God, a study in Christian doctrine and metaphysics. Michael King is Professor of Primary Care Psychiatry at University College London. His training in clinical psychiatry began at the Maudsley Hospital in 1981. He's a tutor in trial methodology, running PhD courses in Europe and Latin America. As a psychiatric epidemiologist, Michael has, for over 30 years, studied the mental health and well-being of gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender people and the role of religious and spiritual beliefs in mental well-being. Dr Nathan MacDonald has been at the University of Cambridge since 2013, where he is reader in the interpretation of the Old Testament and fellow and director of studies in theology at St John's College. For 11 years, Nathan taught Old Testament studies at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. He has extensive knowledge of the Hebrew Bible and early Judaism, and among his books is Not Bread Alone, The Uses of Food in the Old Testament, which is published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Erva John trained as an organic chemist, completing her doctorate on the biosynthesis of penicillin at the University of Oxford. A former director of pastoral studies at Ridley Hall Theological College, Cambridge, Erva has also worked in three other theological colleges, including Trinity College, Bristol and Westcott House, Cambridge. She currently serves as the enabling officer of the Living in Love and Faith project. The Irish poet and philosopher, the late John O'Donoghue, considering the human being's sense of place within creation, wrote, It is a strange and wonderful fact to be here, walking around in a body to have a whole world within you. It is an immense privilege. Andrew Davison, when it comes to our being, 
and identity in the finite now. The LLF chapter suggests that how we interpret the natural knowledge has a direct impact on how we view sexuality and identity. Can you unpack all that for us? Firstly, what for you is meant by the natural knowledge? From a scientific point of view, I think that means the knowledge that comes by inquiring after the nature of things, what they're like. From a theological perspective, we also make a distinction between the knowledge that comes in the scriptures and through God's special revelation to us through the prophets, especially through Jesus, and the knowledge that we have, natural knowledge, by paying attention to the world around us. So I'd want to put the conversations that we're having, very important conversations about sexuality and marriage here, in a wider context of saying whatever a Christian wants to think about responsibly, she has to think about really paying attention to the the matter in hand. And with the research that's gone on over recent years, how does this idea then of variables of sexuality affect what we read in Genesis, male and female, he created them? I think I'd have two responses to that. One is perhaps the question of intersexuality and the fact that not every human being aligns with our understanding of biological male or female in the way that we might have thought in previous centuries. It's not a particularly large proportion, but a significant proportion of people. I don't think we have to hold it against any of the scriptural writers that they didn't have a sense of 20th and 21st century science. And in fact, writers down the history of the church have been quite sophisticated about this. I think they didn't look to Genesis as being a scientific textbook. One of the tasks for us today is to take the central message and to try to understand them with the nuance of parts of scientific understanding that we have now. And so a lot of our conversation here is not about saying we aren't dealing with men and women, but a question about what are the forms of relationship between men and women that are appropriate and life-giving. Michael, what would be your take on this? Well, I worry about the term natural knowledge. On the one hand, it's it's useful. Charles Darwin was a naturalist. He observed nature and gradually formed a theory that we're all very familiar with. But the other side of natural knowledge is used in the same awful way that common sense is used. It's sort of, what do we observe? Oh, well, the sun must be going around the earth, and it looks like that, and so that's natural knowledge. Why I think it's a trap here is because it's obvious, isn't it, that men and women fit together, have babies. Two men together or two women together in the terms of same-sex attraction is not natural, can't be natural, doesn't seem to fit. So an awful lot of damage has been done to people with that common-sense view. Forgive me, just for a point of clarification, are you saying then that same-sex is unnatural? No, that's what I'm saying is the has been through the ages an interpretation. It seems unnatural. It doesn't seem to follow a natural order. It can't lead to procreation and so forth. So that's what I'm saying really is the misuse of this term, natural. Science tries to get beyond what people assume from their, from their view of what they see in front of them. 
you know, Socrates said, the one thing I know is I know nothing. And I think that as a scientist, you have to keep reminding yourself that even what you're observing is probably not right. And therefore, we use probability, don't we, to say, well, you know, there's a very tiny chance we may be wrong in this observation, but the wealth of evidence would suggest it's in this direction or something. So therefore, I'm very wary of even looking at data and thinking, ah, so that's what it means. Returning to this idea of what is the natural knowledge, how does the perfect identity of Jesus assist us here? Ever, John? I guess I would start thinking about our clear understanding and belief that Jesus is the perfect human being. He's fully human in a way that we are, in a way, only partially human through our fallenness and brokenness. So I'm not sure that it's helpful to think about Jesus's humanity in those kind of scientific categories. For me, it's about discerning what questions to address where, as it were. So Jesus being a perfect human gives me a picture of what that looks like. It gives me a relationship with Jesus that enables me to discover more and more about what it means to be fully human. I'm not sure it leads me to kind of deeper scientific understanding about humanity, but I'd be really interested to hear what others have to say about that. Nathan MacDonald. I want to take you back, first of all, to the the question that you asked a little bit earlier about male and female in Genesis. It's useful, I think, to ask what we mean when we talk about a literal meaning of a text like Genesis 1. Not least because it it is not entirely a poetic text, but it gets very close to being poetic. It, it, it has kind of resonances and it, it has a kind of a flow to it that, that moves it closer to being a sort of piece of poetic prose. And by poetic, you mean greater than the literal? I, 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 mean, I mean both literal, but also, you're right, greater than the literal. And, and the way that it describes things is, is very much as a sort of observer-centred view of them. It, it doesn't talk about the sun and the moon in the way that we think about them as, as the sun and the moon. It doesn't identify them as that, first of all. It identifies them as the as the greater light and the lesser light. There's a kind of abstraction to the language that it uses. The the heavens are described as a sort of as, as a sort of hammered out dome. And we need to read that language then of male and female within that same sort of poetic and abstract way of speaking. And it it does that not only with the male and female, it, it does that, of course, with, uh, with, with, with the plants and, and, and with the animals. I mean, it, plants, are, uh, plants are divided into, into trees that bear fruit and, and the plants that give seed. Now, if you were to try and build up a science of crops on the basis of Genesis 1, you would not get very far very quickly. So I think it's also true of, of, of male and female. The, the biblical writers are largely describing the world in a very simple and, again, I go back to this term, poetic structuring of the world. Another way in which we might look at this language of male and female is we might look at them as what biblical scholars would call a, a merism. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. And that means heaven and earth and everything in between. That's what a merism is. It covers everything um, it, it gives you the two extremes and, and, and everything in between. And so when we get a text like Genesis 1 verse 26 talking about male and female being created, I don't think the intention of the writer is to ex- end up excluding. It, it, it means all of humanity. It's the first text in the Bible 
and it is it is it is anticipating an awful lot it is preparing the ground for for, for what is going to follow and 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 what has happened in that sort of very narrow attenuated reading of genesis 1 is almost a view that this is you know if you went back to the beginning of time and had your video camera this is what you would see it, it doesn't seem to be the case that that's what the biblical writers thought, or indeed, you know, as Andrew rightly points out, some of the great interpreters in the past thought. I mean, it's certainly this is not what Oregon or Augustine thought when they read Genesis 1, that it was a sort of video camera view on what happened in the first seven days of, of creation. Andrew? Even looking at someone like John Calvin, the great reformer, in his commentary on Genesis, he says, if you want to know about astronomy, go and talk to the astronomers. This book's about things that he thinks are more important even than that. Uh, one of the founders of the Royal Society, the great scientific society, who was Bishop of Chester, said we, we would just get distracted if it was endlessly about science. So it keeps to the things that matter, like what it means to be a human and what it means to worship God. And he has a rather beautiful image of God talking to us about those things. And then the other things, the scientific things, is just saying, there's the world. Get at it. You know, put your lab coat on, roll your sleeves up, get your microscope out. Uh, and that's up, that's up to you to find out. Michael King. Yes, I, I agree. They're very difficult to explain to people, though, because if you ask a scientist something, they'll, say, they'll hedge about and say they're not absolutely sure. And we see this with the COVID-19 pandemic, don't we? Endlessly scientists changing their minds. Well, thank goodness they changed their minds because the evidence keeps changing, and so the probabilities keep changing. But it doesn't help when you come to a theological discussion where people expect truths that, that run through ages. Nathan. There isn't just one theology in the biblical text. We know that the Bible itself is a kind of rich library from various different times with various different perspectives. And that's also true of its perspectives on natural theology and on what you might learn about God from nature. You know, there is no one simple view. The enigma and wonder of human biology glows gloriously within what we might call the kaleidoscope of creation. But why do some people find themselves feeling as if they don't belong at all because of their sexuality, their otherness? Michael King, your many years of research covers patterns of mental health amongst gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender people. What are the specific effects on mental health for those who feel sidelined from full participation in church life because of who they, in quotes, gloriously are? First of all, I don't think it's a feeling. I think it's an actual exclusion that's been going on in the church, but in wider society even more or as harshly. Now, we know from... Uh, the evidence that gay and lesbian people and trans and non-binary people have very high rates of what we call mental disorders, various disorders like depression, anxiety, even psychosis, even the more serious um, illnesses like schizophrenia. They are more common in uh, non-heterosexuals, if you want to put it that way. Now, the, when I say more common, they're two to three, up to six times more common uh, and this is a terrible uh, legacy that seems to be due to this isolation and discrimination. And we hoped, as societies, particularly in the West, became more liberal and more accepting, and they definitely have, uh, we didn't have same-sex marriage even a few years ago, that this would ease. 
But our research evidence in the last five years would indicate that young people, and by young people I mean adolescents, uh, very early 20s, have the same high rates of mental distress as they did perhaps in the 70s, as gay and lesbian, I'm talking about gay and lesbian youth, in the 70s, uh, as they do now. And I think it's, for as far as we can see, due to this marginalisation, due to this, this feeling of apartness from bullying in schools, bullying in society as a whole, it's quite profound. One of the contributors quoted in the LLF book is Lynn-Marie Tonstadt, Associate Professor of Theology, Religion and Sexuality at Yale Divinity School. She writes, How to understand the orientation of life under the shadow of death? That question is the question of Christianity and the question of queerness too. What for you are the components of orientation? That's a, I'm going to be a scientist and say that's a very complex question because even recently we're understanding that we're not asking that question well. Um, it's no use asking people, are you gay, straight, lesbian or bisexual? They were the, or heterosexual of course, were, they were the stock questions. And it's clear from studies with youth in the last 20 years that they're just not questions that go anywhere. And it, you know, it's better to ask on some sort of level, some sort of degree, how much are you attracted to people of the same sex and how much are you attracted to people of the opposite sex? And you do find, there's increasing uh, evidence, genetic and other evidence, that we seem to have two axes of sexual attraction and that, that best explains sexual orientation. One is towards the opposite sex and one is towards the same sex. Now, I say that because sexual orientation used to be viewed as completely homosexual at one end and completely heterosexual at the other. But some people are not attracted to either sex. They're so-called asexual. And they don't fit anywhere on this uh, spectrum. But they would fit in, in a two-sided spectrum. And that's quite important because all of us have components of same-sex attraction and opposite-sex attraction in us. And sometimes when men or women feel that perhaps minor side to them, you know, they might be largely heterosexual as we think about it, and suddenly find themselves drawn uh, to a same-sex friend, that can be very unsettling. They just don't understand, you know, am I queer sort of thing. Um, and they're not. That's simply the biological situation. And we need to know a lot, lot more about this. And, and that's why I think even after decades and decades of research in the 20th century and the 21st century, we're still a long way from understanding what sexual orientation is. But I would say the one real key feature to it is your attraction. What turns you on? And what turns you on, I suppose initially, is heavily associated with feeling, as opposed to the analysis comes afterwards. But it's the initial feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it's what we would say in science is a priori. You don't choose what to desire. It's extremely hard to alter that, that instinctive leap and therefore um, it's been the efforts to change people's sexual orientation have been futile. Andrew Davison. I was thinking about the statistics about mental health and especially that the out, you know the, the, the statistics are not great even if uh, even for young people today and I wondered if it was worth asking Michael does that mean that 
same-sex attraction is a disorder and it's leading to mental ill health? Because that's one conclusion people might draw from that. That's a very good question. It's a very good point because uh, we find that every time we publish results showing continuing mental disorder or mental distress, that very right-wing, often Christian, I have to say, uh, websites take that up, particularly in the United States, unfortunately, take it up as evidence that these are what's, what are called comorbidities. In other words, homosexuality is a core disorder, and therefore, of course, it's accompanied by other fallouts like depression and so forth. But there are certain rules that you follow for understanding is something a, a disorder in terms of its sequelae. So we talk about things like neurological soft signs and all sorts of things that may indicate that a state is a disorder rather than normal human variation. And if you do that, if you, if you apply those sorts of tests to this, there's no evidence that this is just the side issues of a disorder called homosexuality. That said, um, several geneticists are raising the very controversial issue um, at the moment that the genes for depression and anxiety seem to travel with the genes for homosexuality and the two may be selected together. So I think we have to be very careful about that kind of evidence because it's very reductive and I don't know what it's saying really when you've got a mountain of evidence for discrimination and prejudice that's still ongoing in our societies. From the laws of motion pioneer, Isaac Newton, to 21st century preeminent human genome specialist, Francis Collins, it could be said that theological curiosity sparked their scientific pilgrimage. And I could name many other leading scientists and mathematicians who hold the Christian faith, as I'm sure those listening could. Ever, John, bringing in your scientific training and discipline, what can the, the natural and social sciences tell us about identity, sexuality, relationships, even marriage, perhaps? My first instinct in just thinking about that question is that they perhaps first don't tell us so much about what to think about those things, but about how to think about those things. As scientists, we bring an approach to knowledge and to seeking truth that I think can be really helpful uh, and and combining that approach with the sort of more theological conversations can enable us to get to new places. I don't mean I don't mean in the sense of taking us polarized one way or another, but but it can help us to see new things and you have new insights. It is also of course important to look at what is happening in both the social and natural sciences in relation to some of the really complex questions that um, gender identity, um, sexual orientation raise. It's really important to have uh, people like we have, like Michael and Andrew and so on, who can really uh, help us to understand the status or, or where we've got to in science, which isn't very far on some of these questions because they're so complex. Sometimes that's been quite challenging too because I think people do want to reach for the science to help argue their case. What scientific research reminds us is is that it's it is always provisional. You know there's, there's always more to discover. Cause and effect isn't obvious. Taking the 
New Testament testimony of God reducing himself in the human form of Jesus, which is some chemistry experiment. Where, where does that leave us with our unresolved states surrounding sexuality and identity? I, I personally don't think there's anything wrong with unresolved states. Um, you know, we live in, that's the nature of science and the nature of, nature of society. We live with unresolved states all the time. We don't really understand the origins of heterosexuality, let alone homosexuality. So isn't, isn't the idea that, that loving God and, and loving your neighbour, there's a certain acceptance of, of who people are without judging or, or, or reducing them and assuming that people um, have some good in them and have something to offer. So I, I just feel... It w wouldn't be a free-for-all in the way Ava... I said, well, I don't think Ava was meaning a free-for-all in that sense, but um, that everybody is welcome, you know, not to make judgments too quickly about people, because in the past that's been very cruel and exclusory, if you can say that word. Allow me to be your supermarket queue philosopher for a moment, courtesy of American author Liam Callanan. In his book, The Cloud Atlas, he writes, We are all ghosts. We all carry inside us people who came before us. Nathan MacDonald, turning to your speciality of Old Testament studies, and particularly the Israelites, the prototype monotheistic community of believers, as their group identity developed, how did they go about accepting and bringing the other not only into the group, but also as perhaps an equal member. How did they hear God in this transformation? Not always straightforwardly. It was the Israelite engagement with the foreign other is a thread that sort of winds its way all the way through the biblical text. And there are certainly some wonderful purple passages uh, those passages that talk about the need to love the stranger in Deuteronomy 10, um, the way that that is compared to how God has acted towards the Israelites, that he took them out of Egypt when they were slaves and therefore they ought to treat slaves, they ought to treat the stranger generously as God has treated them. And yet there are also texts which seem to us to be almost vehemently opposed to foreigners being part of the community. There are texts that talk about um, excluding Edomites or Egyptians, not for one generation, for multiple generations, and sometimes with groups like the Amalekites forever. So um, the picture, if you look at the biblical text, is 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 complicated and there are texts where that conflict bubbles to the surface and it seems very likely that one text or one writer is deliberately opposing another writer whose writings are preserved within the biblical text. So we have a text like Isaiah 56 that would appear not only to welcome foreigners and eunuchs into the temple community, but almost seems to be playing with the idea that they may serve as priests within that community. And then we have a text like Ezekiel 44 that 
appears to have read Isaiah 56 and is absolutely incensed by that idea. And the answer is simply no, absolutely not under any circumstances. What you're articulating is both the complexity and the, the, the clarity that can be found in the Hebrew Bible and also the, the New Testament. Are you saying then, and we'll use a scientific metaphor here, that, that the scriptures similar to nitric acid you should handle with care? It's, a, it's an interesting comparison to nitric acid. <laughs> and scripture does have a number of metaphors about itself that, you know, it is a hammer, it is a fire, it can be so many things. And it, and, you're, and you're right, it, it sometimes the most toxic and the most dangerous thing in the world is the Bible in the hands of some Christians. And, and Christians over the centuries have thought very hard about how one then reads the Bible well, because it is, of course, possible to read it less well. On Augustine's is probably as, as good as any that, you know, at the centre of biblical interpretation, all biblical interpretation should lead to, lead to love of God and love of neighbour. And biblical interpretation that fails to do that is a biblical interpretation that has simply become not only non-Christian, but actually in significant ways anti-Christian. St. Augustine, whose name checked in a few of these podcasts, wrote some 1600 years ago about the need for Christians to be informed about, quote, the best knowledge circulating in the culture around them, end of quote. If we are to do likewise, doesn't that turn faith into a, a perpetual seminar? And, and how are we to discern what is the best knowledge about these important issues. Andrew? I think I've got two things to say about whether it leads to an endless seminar. One of them is that seminars are not a bad thing and there's a place for them in the church and at the moment the Church of England and other churches too are engaged in a conscious process of thinking hard about these questions about sexuality and marriage uh, and the family because they're questions for this moment and the history of the church is a history of very serious thought. I'd also say we should give the wider public, the wider Christian public, credit for being intelligent readers. Even to be able to open a book and make something of it, you have to bring years and years of study at, well, the language and being a human being and living in a community. So I don't want to dismiss people as a, as a whole as if uh, thinking things through was not actually part of the life of every human being. Nathan? I would agree entirely with Andrew, what Andrew says. And I think, you know, the church is, is, is the gathered people of God. And actually the gathered people of God, you know, should like to talk to one another and should like to be with one another and should like to understand what's going on with one another. But they are also the people of the book. Most Christians really do want to spend, you know, time with the Bible and they do want to study it, you know, so and want to learn more about it. But it's not as if interest in science or ethics is unknown in the 21st century. Our bookshops are full of wonderful books trying to mediate science to general audience. So yeah, I think it absolutely chimes with what people want to do. Michael King. Although that's fun and very interesting, I think there's something much more urgent going on here because if you look at survey results, the commonest reason now, the, probably the top reason that young people don't want to be involved with the Church of England is its perceived attitudes to gay and lesbian people that the church is seen, rightly or wrongly, as very intolerant. So I'd just be a wee bit careful. I think that it's fun having these discussions over 
over a couple of years, and then there was plenty of listening exercises before that, but still the church is perceived as stuck. Although it's important to think also to say that the church is more than one thing. And in my experience of the church, certainly since I was ordained, and before I think, there's been a succession of parishes that have been wonderfully uh, warm and accepting and delighted in human relationships, whether they're between people of opposite sex or the same sex. People probably don't have to travel that far to find Christian community where if they're gay or lesbian, bisexual, uh, transgender, they will find a warm welcome. At the parish level, um, it's a way ahead. So I completely uh, agree with that and understand that. I'm thinking more the perception of the church, the hierarchy of the church, the structure of the church from the outside. And some of those young people's um, judgments may be quite unfair because they haven't actually experienced a parish, and I would absolutely take that. But I still think it's a shocking reputation to have, and it may be quite unfair at times, but it's still there. For those listening to this podcast who may take a more traditional line of biblical teaching on human identity, sexuality, relationships and marriage, is LLF loosening those supposed assumptions? If we mean by loosening, that inevitably means changing what we think about things that we thought we already understood, then I hope very much that LLF does that. And and I hope also that that, that is what we all aspire when whenever we read resources like this, that we develop and we change and we become more aware of the world and more aware of scripture and more aware of other people as we do so. I think I think it will certainly be possible for some to read and perhaps to feel threatened. I hope they won't feel threatened because I think it's an invitation into a conversation. Eva, you've been at the eye of the storm. Well, if not the storm, let's call it the vigorous weather for, for over a couple of years now. And, and as this podcast is being recorded, we're coming up to the publication. How do you view it now? I think we're all we all have this desire. Speaking of Michael was talking about desire, we have a desire to kind of reach a conclusion to find out if we're right or, you know, have some sense of certainty. And we're all we are actually inviting each other to hold on for a minute with the uncertainty and to be prepared to learn new things, to ask some of the difficult, sometimes interdisciplinary questions to dig deeper, but also to listen harder and trying to, to, to remind us that we're doing in this in, in the safety of a God who loves us and of a God who created us and created everything that there is. So there's a safety about doing that exploration. It's, it's not going to go somewhere scary. We're not doing this alone. We're doing it sort of empowered by the spirit of God working among us as we do this work. It's also asking of of the people of God, Christians, people in churches, to do some serious learning. And I'm not sure we do enough of that in the church, saying, well, you know, let's ask some questions about what's happening in the world around us. Um, These are particularly um, potentially contentious questions. And what is amazing is to, after couple of years of working together, of having someone who has a particular perspective, actually wanting to make sure that the wording also reflects the opposite perspective. You know, we're almost doing it on behalf of each other now. And in some ways, that's for me, 
the perfect result. Andrew, what have you learned from the LLF experience? I've learned that the Church of England is fundamentally a friendly place. And you don't need to look at religious Twitter or Facebook for very long to realise that's not always the case. But my experience right through has been that I haven't seen that with the living and in love and faith process. It's actually grown stronger through these years of working together and I hope that we can preserve it and we can take it further because cultures around the world are splintering and people are getting more and more into their little groups that don't talk to others. And I think we're managing to avoid that in our own church and I'm very grateful to those who've set a lead there. Michael, has LLF been comfortable for you? No, not really. I was reflecting on Ava's words, uh, there's a safety in that exploration, but I don't think it was necessarily that safe for gay and lesbian members and trans members of the LLF. But who I think feels most unsafe are gay and lesbian and transgender people outside they may have very high expectations of it and I hope they're not going to be disappointed because I think sometimes in wider society they look to this sort of process will lead them to the lit uplands of acceptance and uh, open arms for gay and lesbian people in the church and they, you know, they might want to see more radical change rather than more navel gazing, more discussion, more listening. I'm really allergic to that word listening because the church seems to have been listening for a very long time i don't know i i found it fascinating i wasn't bored but i found it fascinating too because of the theology to listen to the theologians but i'm a bit worried i feel sometimes slightly compromised i'm a bit more radical on the outside than in llf and therefore i i fear for how it will be seen or even how i will be seen uh, within the organisation, so there's levels of safety at all at, at all parts of this process. I, I love your review, Michael. I wasn't bored. That's um, <laughs> that, that that should be a bumper sticker, I think. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast, and my thanks to Andrew Davison, Michael King, Nathan Macdonald, and Eva John. Not so much food for thought, more a banquet for the intellect and the heart. If you'd like to rate or even review this podcast, then that would be grand, thank you. There are also further resources available at churchofengland.org forward slash LLF. Goodbye and thank you very much for listening.